This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. This time on the Out of Water podcast, we're bringing you part of a message from Pastor Sam Kastensmith in his series, The Miracle Behind the Miracles. In this episode, Sam will continue leading us through the miracles performed by Moses. What can we learn about God when he enables Moses to bring forth water from a rock, to win a battle against the Amalekites, or to bring healing through a bronze serpent? How do these miracles point to the ministry of Jesus? Let's find out. We'll go to the Ingram Center Theater at Rio Vista Community Church and Pastor Sam Kastensmith. The point of miracles in the Bible, the point of miracles still to this day, is not God doing parlor tricks. It's not cheap. It's not a circus. They're not, you know, just for fun. It's God communicating something and accomplishing something for gospel ends in the way that he moves among his people here. And so in the Bible, what you never see is God taking advantage of miraculous powers selfishly. He's always using his power, his authority over creation and disease and life and death itself in order to bless creation and to bring them to himself. That's the greater call. And so we've seen all these voices from the past where it's, it's been Jewish or Roman voices saying that Jesus was a sorcerer. Well, why do they say that? Because they've seen him do some pretty incredible things. Here is a bishop of Athens whose name is Quadratus. He says, our Savior's works, moreover, were always present. So he's writing this in the early second century. So 110 AD, 80 years after Jesus. Our Savior's works, moreover, were always present for they were real, consisting of those who had been healed of their diseases, those who had been raised from the dead, who were not only seen whilst they were being healed and raised up, but afterwards constantly present. Nor did they remain only during the sojourn of the Savior on earth, but also a considerable time after his departure. And indeed, some of them have survived even down to our time. So here's this man, Quadratus, who becomes the Bishop of Athens, who at an older age is saying, A lot of the people who experience personal healings, I had interactions with. I talked with them. We knew them. These things happened. The Apostle Paul, when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about the resurrection, he doesn't go, wink, wink, trust me. What does he say? He says, we were witnesses. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to James. He appeared to 500 people at one time. And the insinuation is, go ask them. They're still around. Because he's writing this within a generation of Jesus and his miracles. And so one of the, one of the driving ideas, one of the reasons why I wanted to start with miracles is we live in a cynical age, Right? Where the spiritual, we kind of look at it and go, "Mm, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that miracles happen? Do I really believe there's a spiritual realm? And this generation, especially the younger generations, they don't want to believe in anything that they can't see, touch, smell, taste, measure. And we've talked about 
The greater question, and this is where I think, my opinion, one of the reasons why the church has failed is we always try to explain away the miraculous. We try to explain it away. And so we come to miracles and say, no, that's, that's actually possible. We could, we could manufacture and engineer some circumstances where that could happen, and it misses the whole point of what the Bible's getting at, which is, no, it can't. The greater question, then, is not what, how, where, or when these things happen, because there's some miracles where you're like, that's kooky. It's intended to be kooky, right? To where you look at it, a burning bush that doesn't burn up. That, Moses looked at it and goes, that doesn't make sense. We should look at it and go, that doesn't make sense. There's got to be a greater truth behind it. Well, it just so happens those things preach the gospel. And they get, we get after the question, why? Why would God do these miracles? What is he hoping to reveal to us? And so we're going to continue in the life of Moses, but just as a refresher, you see how their lives line up. So you've got Moses on one side, Jesus on the other side, and you can just see God in his sovereignty is mapping out their lives right next to each other. 400-year period of silence, check. A tyrant who goes after the babies to kill the baby boys, check. You've got somebody who fears God and refuses to kill the babies, check. They flee, Herod dies and then they return, or Pharaoh dies and Moses returns. The first miracle is either turning water to blood or water to wine. And you go through those, and these lives match up for the Jewish religion. Moses is the man. This is the one they look to, the one who gave the law, the one who was on Sinai, wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the most sacred writings. And here, when Jesus comes in, God sovereignly ordains these two to be echoes of one another, but Jesus is far greater. Why? It's to show you that Moses can only take you so far, but he ultimately can't save you from the grave. He ultimately leaves you in slavery and bondage to the law with no hope, but a greater Moses is here. All right, so pressing on in Exodus, we get to the story. So now they're grumbling all the way, right? Oh, you've only brought us out of Egypt into the wilderness to die. Oh, I wish that we were in Egypt around pots of meat. And oh, we don't have food. And then he does this miracle of bringing forth water from a rock. They're grumbling. They come to him. And God, supernaturally, like you can't make sense of this. There is no like natural phenomenon where rocks start pouring out water to give drink to two million people. Why does he give us this? Christ is the rock. He is the one that provides. But let's, let's read and see how this story develops. It says in Exodus 17, the people thirsted there for water. The people grumbled against Moses. There they are again. Like they, this is constantly them. And it's constantly us. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? There it is again. See, here's a God who's delivered them from tyranny and slavery, and they're grumbling that he's done it. You ever get in your Christian walk and you're like, man, I like the old ways better. <laughs> the old Sam used to be able to do... We do that. We grumble all the time. So you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. And so Moses goes to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, 
and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And you go, all right, well, apart from the fact that the New Testament tells us that's Christ, like, what is he getting at here? You know, later in this same story, you have Moses that will disobey God doing a similar thing later in the story where God says, hey, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to speak to the rock and the water will gush forth. And what does Moses do? It's, it's what prevents Moses from being able to go into the promised land. He strikes it. Why does he do that? He's angry. But at bottom, who gets the glory? Look what I did. You people complain at me. Bam, bam. Look what I do for you. And God goes, whoa. Now, this is a humble guy. The Bible tells you that he is, of course, he's writing this, which is kind of bizarre, but it tells you that he is the most humble man at the time from the pen of Moses. That sounds like my writing. <laughs> but anyway, he is going to be prevented from going into to the promised land because he goes to the rock, he hits it twice, and here's the crazy thing. God will take it out on Moses. Who does he not take it out on? The people. They still get their water. That's kind of cool. Thank the Lord that God still feeds his people despite faulty shepherds. But what do you hear in that? Here is Moses in the middle of the wilderness, and he's facing temptation, right? And God says, this is God's command. I want you to speak to this rock, and it will provide water for everyone else. Right? This is not about you, Moses. And Moses goes, oh, I'm going to make it about me. And he hits the rock, and he wants all the glory for himself. 1,500 years later, there's going to be a similar conversation in another desert. Jesus is going to be out in the desert, and Satan is going to come to him. And what's he say? Come on, you're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Like, speak to the rock. Tell this rock to become bread. Do you know how wild people would go for you if you showed that kind of power? Just make it easy for yourself. You don't have to go to the cross. You shouldn't have to suffer. You're the son of God. Jesus will not exploit miracles for his own personal gain. He won't do it. Radically different than Moses, who at this moment fails and makes the glory all about me, Jesus, when he's presented with the opportunity for power and fame and glory, which would have come, man, if he could multiply bread out of stones in a poor nation, oh, they would have, they would have, they'd have crowned him right there. And he says, no. I, he only does that miracle. He'll multiply bread and give it all away, not for himself. And so beyond that, Here's another picture. What do you see here when you have Moses who takes a staff and says, you want life? What do you see in that? And he strikes the rock with a staff and it gushes forth water. Yeah, there's kind of an image of that, right? Jesus on the cross, he's 
He's dead. The Romans come to make sure that he's dead, and they stab him with a spear, and out comes blood and water, right? And so there's kind of an actual picture of it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so here's this picture, and I think pretty confident that God wants us to put this together. When you go back all the way to the beginning of Scripture, you've got this picture that's giving you of paradise. It's on a mountain. Ezekiel tells us that Eden is a mountain, right? And we know that it's a mountain because it says that it's the source of the headwaters, and it gives four rivers that go out to the ends of the earth, right? In the middle of the garden are two trees God dwelling with man in perfect harmony, the waters run out and they bring life, the idea, four waters going to the ends of the earth in each direction, bringing life to humankind to the end of the earth. Then we spoiled it. We blew Eden. We blew paradise. We said, I want the throne. We spat in God's face. We rebelled. And he said, okay. And he obliged us and he let us learn how painful life is like without his grace a season. But then you get to the end of the book, and the way that John, in the end of the book in Revelation, describes heaven, oh man, it's really familiar. It's another mountain. And this mountain has two trees growing on either side of the river of life, but both of them are the tree of life. So here you've got another mountain. Here you've got, you know, two trees on either side of a river of life and God dwelling with man again and and everything is restored except it's restored to something far greater than Eden. And we're left with the question, okay, we begin with this paradise garden and we end with this paradise garden, but how do we get there? There's going to be another mountain. And on this mountain, you'll find God amidst his people. And there will be a tree here. There will be a tree here. And when that Roman soldier goes and jabs that spear into him, guess what flows out? The flow that brings life to the ends of the earth. We get paradise. Paradise is restored to us because he went to hell. Because he hung on a different mountain between two trees. God's relationship with man is restored because he hung on that tree. And when you picture Moses going, give me all the glory, and he strikes the rock. Put that in contrast to God who hangs on a cross, and he's the one who's struck. So that you can share in his glory The humility of God is stunning. The beauty of God is just absolutely stunning that he would would do that for us. And so that miracle is, is incredibly instructive. It points us to the beauty of God. It should humble us under the weight of that. Then you get to the next story as as we're pressing along through the book of Exodus. You get to this really, really incredibly weird story of the battle of Rephidim where the Israelites go up against this really savage group of people that are called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were known in the ancient world to be unbelievably wicked. They worshipped a god. Their primary god was a god by the name of Moloch. And from writings and and things that we have from history, we know that Moloch was a, 
about fertility, and the way that you worshipped Moloch was child sacrifice. And so the way that you would worship Moloch, they had statues of Moloch all around that would be made of bronze. This is a little adult, so sorry in advance. But they would have a statue of bronze where he would be, and bronze is a soft metal, so he would be standing like this with his arms curled. And they would go behind him and they would light a fire in the statue that would make him glow. And all in front, all the people who would see him glow would be like, he's coming to life. You know, he's, he's showing might and power. He's glowing like there's life in him. And they would come and they would lay infant children in his arms that were burning, glowing hot. And they would be consumed by fire. But because the bronze had grown molten hot, the weight of the child would do this, and it would look like Moloch was opening his arms to accept the sacrifice of that child down into the fires. This is the savagery, by the way, that the Israelites are going up against. When Christianity, a lot of times, will get you know, a finger in the eye when, when it comes to Genesis 22, and you get to the story where God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son. I want you to go on a day's journey or three days journey. I want you to get to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice your son there. That was par for the course. And ancient Palestine, that those, that's what those religions did. Child sacrifice was normal. And where people look at the story of Abraham and Isaac, then they, they say, oh, how could your faith do that? The whole point of that story was to exhort the nations that is not how you please God. It is to say, no, Abraham, Abraham, stay your knife. God will provide the sacrifice. Don't sacrifice your children. That's an abomination to God. That's evil. And the story of Abraham and Isaac, which is maligned, ironically, is teaching, don't you dare do that. God is the one who will provide. And so they go up to war against the Amalekites. And this is the passage. It's, it's fairly short. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. You go, what? Like, I'd I'd like to hear the naturalistic explanation for that one. Like, what changed on the battlefield when Moses goes, oh, I'm too tired? When his arms drop, they lose. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Why? You see this, right? Here you've got God's favored man who goes up on a mountain. And how are his people to achieve victory? He goes up on this mountain and his arms are to be outstretched. With one man over here, one man over here, and when that happens, guess who's achieving victory for his people? A man named Joshua. Gee, what's that name? It's Yeshua. God is painting 
this story so unbelievably clear? Like a man on a hill with outstretched arms and between two other people. And by the way, this is written 1,500 years before Jesus is born. The sovereignty of God. How do you look at that and say, well, that's really just a weird miracle that's has no point. Like, no, it's preaching the gospel, but what does that mean? We've talked about this before. It's really cool. That means that miracle is your miracle from the cross. It is the ultimate intercession where the man of God goes and stands before God in our, in our place, not just, not just pleading for us, being a substitute for us from the cross. In that posture, as the battle's raging, what does he do? Father, forgive them. He's interceding. That's really beautiful. And we then have the victory. There's nobody who's strong enough besides one. There's one hero who can accomplish it all by himself, and we're not him. (laughs) But in ministry, you need people to hold your arms up. You're going to grow tired. You're going to grow weary. You need friends around you. You need people to encourage you to lift your arms. That's a really beautiful picture of the way Christian brothers and sisters are supposed to behave, that when someone's weak, you don't go to them and say, buck up. You grab an arm and you lift it. All right, so the next story, the bronze serpent. We start in Numbers 21. The people became impatient on the way and spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and listen to this. And we loathe this worthless food. Let me ask an honest question. How often do you grumble at God for things that he is unbelievably gracious to you in? Here's God raining down manna abundantly. And it's not just like, here's some drivel. He makes it taste like honey. He goes out of his way to provide for them when they could not provide for themselves. And they're like, oh, this worthless food, we loathe it. And so now, for one of the very first times, the Lord's like, all right, you need some serious discipline. Which is love, by the way, right? The Bible says the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, wake up call, we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. And you see this, in in the works of Moses, serpents are always evil. This is always bad, right? The fall, serpent is no bueno. Pharaoh, what's the mark of his crown? Serpent, right? He's the serpent king that gets defeated, Then you go here, it's more serpents, right? And this is really fascinating to me. They say, pray to the Lord that he take these serpents away from us. That's all they're asking for. Just get them away. Which tells you something. The people who are asking this haven't been bit yet. (laughs) Right? Get them away from us. They don't say, oh no, heal our people. It's just get them away from me. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, bronze, and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, literally a standard. It would be a T-shaped pole like we saw in that picture. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And here again, this makes no sense. 
unless you come to a supernatural question and you ask, why? You know, I even think in in biology, there's something really beautiful about the way that God has ordained the natural order in this regard. If you're bitten by a serpent, snake comes, let's say it's a rattlesnake, and it bites you, what is your hope? Antivenom. You know how you make antivenom? Hear this. Ready? Hear how God has ordained this in nature. To make antivenom, in other words, to overcome the wound of the serpent, someone else has to be bitten. Then that someone else then begins to produce what? Antibodies in their blood. And then that person's blood heals you. Does that sound familiar? Someone else has to take the vicious bite, and then their blood heals you. Hmm. It's interesting that he ordains it that way. I'm sure it's just coincidence. <laughs> but anyway, what is, what is this getting at? This is one of the most shocking passages of the New Testament. When you get there to John 3, what is the most famous passage of Scripture? John 3.16, Right? I mean, that's like if somebody's got a shot at quoting scripture apart from maybe Jesus wept, like, you know, this is going to be the verse. And listen to how it starts. Listen to the context of this verse that we say all the time or that we see all the time. This is Jesus talking. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Radical. Here's Jesus, God in the flesh. And when he gives us a picture by which we're to understand his ministry, this is what he says. I have to become the serpent. Excuse me? Perfectly righteous? Epitome of love? Totally selfless? Altogether holy? I have to become the serpent. What does he mean? The serpent is the epitome of all evil. It's evil and it's extreme. And Jesus is saying, just as that serpent, that fiery bronze serpent was lifted up, I'm going to have to be lifted up. And what does the Bible say? It says that Jesus became sin on the cross. There was a moment on the cross when the Father looked at Jesus. He had become everything disgusting, repulsive, infuriating to the holiness of God. He became sin. He took on and was saturated with all the nasty things that I have ever done and ever will do. In that moment, Jesus is saturated by all the nasty things that you've done and ever will do. All of it. On him. The worst offenders that have been forgiven. Mass murderers, adulterers, child sacrificers. All the sins of the world come upon him and He becomes sin. And the verse doesn't end there, thank God. He became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
That's some for real love. God became utterly repulsive, pummeled under the just wrath of God that should have been ours, so that we in his sight can become the righteousness of God. And for all of us that, you know, I came out of a background where when I first started encountering and seeking after God, I thought, you know, I just, I have to be good enough. I have to prove myself. I've got to, I've got to show myself worthy of God. I've got to, you know, study the Bible and I've got to pray harder and I've got to, I've got to do this and get involved and ta 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 if God's ever going to show me love. And you know, one of the, the theology behind what Jesus is saying here, if you're one of the people who's crawling around on the desert floor inflicted and poisoned by the serpent's venom, what do you have to do to be saved? Well, I got to start a Bible study and I got to... No. You just look. God has given you a promise. And this is it, right? The promise is if you look... To the bronze serpent, you'll be healed. Well, what does it take for you to then look? To stare? To expect, right? You're looking at it going, I have faith. I trust God and his promise. And sometimes that you might do it only because you have no better option. Some of us came to faith that way, right? And he's faithful to heal, not because of what you do, but merely because you take him at his promise and you look. And the wound of the enemy, the wound of the serpent, done, and you have life. That's Christ on the cross. Just as the serpent was lifted up on the standard, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And anyone, here's, the, here's that again, anyone who looks to him. We talked last week about how absurd the claim is that Christianity is exclusive. The, the claim of truth is exclusive. But who is it open to? Anyone who will look. Doesn't matter what your struggles are. Doesn't matter what your past is. Doesn't matter what your shame is. Doesn't matter, you know, how you identify yourself. If you will look and trust in Christ, if your eyes will catch him on the cross and trust in him, he's yours. Salvation is yours. It's not about what you can add to the equation. It's crazy arrogant to think that it is. Imagine going before God the Father. I'm getting on a rant here. Imagine going before God the Father, really. Because we all have this feel like we need to earn some, some part of it. We got to earn some part of it. Imagine going to God the Father who said, I've given my son in agony on a cross facing the wrath of God to quench and totally deal with the wrath, the penalty for your sin and it's like we go to him and say, yeah, 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 but I've got something to offer too. That's, that's not enough. Excuse me? I remember going on an evangelism explosion call with Dr. Kennedy, and that we were talking with a lady who was saying, yeah, but you have to contribute something. And he, his response stuck with me. He's like, you know, it's like you're trying to go across the Grand Canyon, this chasm, and you want to take Christ's work, which is like this steel, unbreakable cord, and you want to go across the entire Grand Canyon, but at the last inch, you want to add your dental floss. <laughs> if it breaks, it's not the steel. It's the stupid dental floss that you wanted to add. Don't try to add to that finished work. He's, he's, he's sufficient. 
Just look. Trust. Thanks, Sam. And thank you, friend, for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed what you hear, please subscribe and give us a good rating so that other people can find Out of Water also. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. water.